Well, greetings on this Palm Sunday and another coronavirus podcast sermon from my study. Um, I may not be with you, but uh, I am so thrilled to be preaching for you and pray that the Word of God goes out um, to you today. Today's sermon is a convergence of two events that on the surface seem worlds apart. On the one hand, it's Palm Sunday. It feels out of place, of course, not to be gathered as the church, singing Hosanna with the children as they process down the aisle, waving palm branches. I still remember nine or ten years ago, it must have been, when Ben Wasserman, gosh, five or six years old at the time, came bounding down the aisle in this inflatable blue donkey that sort of bounced him from side to side, somehow missing the ends of the wooden pews with his head. Um, it, It was pretty amazing. Anyone who has the video of that, I would love to see it, by the way. Anyway, our our scripture reading from Matthew 21 recalls a scene in which Jesus enters Jerusalem to cheers of Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew word for God save, and in the highest means God save using your highest heavenly resources. John's gospel adds the detail that the people laid down palm branches on the road before Jesus, which is where we get the term Palm Sunday. But palm branches were more than just an added detail in the story. Palm branches had specific, revolutionary meaning to first-century Jews. You see, centuries earlier, before the Romans occupied Israel, it was the Syrians who were the oppressors. And through a series of battles, Simon Maccabeus, a relative of Judas Maccabeus, defeated a great enemy through a military victory. When he rode into town, Uh, As a victor, they waved palm branches before him. And ever since then, palm branches have been the symbol of Israelite victory over their oppressors. So we have one story where Jesus seems to be coming into Jerusalem to great affirmation and cheers of hope that he would be a king leading them to victory. But on the other side of this sermon is the fact that we're in the culmination of our series focusing on the seven last words or phrases of Jesus that he spoke from the cross. The seven last words are Good Friday words. They're a man's last words of his life. And today we'll focus on the seventh word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. With these words, Jesus breathed his last. Now, on the surface, I can hardly think of a greater contrast between palm branches and shouts of salvation and the last words of a man on whom all of those hopes of Palm Sunday rested, only to be, apparently, dashed on Good Friday. Two events, five days apart chronologically, and yet they appear to be light years apart in meaning. All I can say is, looks are deceiving. It turns out Palm Sunday wasn't as joyous as people make it out to be, and Good Friday wasn't as devastating as the world powers had hoped it would be. Thanks be to God, and thanks be to God that there is good news in this passage for us today, even in, and especially in, the midst of this crisis. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 23, 44-49. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds came together for the spectacle when they observed what had happened and began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. Would you pray with me? Lord, in light of the world that we're living in today, it seems appropriate that in this sermon today we have a convergence of texts, a convergence of themes, a convergence of great joy and affirmation, shouts of victory, and great suffering. And Lord, it's even more fitting that in your unique way, a God who calls into being an upside-down kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, it's fitting that we see Palm Sunday to be a shell of a celebration, a facade, if you will, and we see Good Friday to be the victory of substance. Help us, Lord, not just to grasp this with our minds today, but to come to know it deep in our bones, deep in our heart, deep in our soul where we need it most. And help us, just as you, Lord Jesus, came to know, that we can trust the Father with our very spirit, with our very soul. Amen. Before Jesus' seventh word from the cross, he experienced the events of Palm Sunday. People were shouting their national hopes and placing them on Jesus' shoulders as he rode into town. In their minds, and likely in their hearts, they had hoped he would be a leader who would lead Israel to victory over Rome and bring them to prominence once again as God's people, a city on a hill to the rest of the world. But what people didn't know was the depth of Jesus' convictions. First, Jesus was deeply convicted that he would not entrust himself to human beings. At the end of John chapter 2, for example, crowds were all hyped up on Jesus. They were believing in his name because of the signs he was doing. And here's the quote, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all people. He knew what was in human beings. In the Synoptic Gospels, it says that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. In other words, Jesus was never one for hype, and he never believed his own hype. That's something we would do well to consider when we think of what church is and what success looks like. For his part, Jesus was having none of it. The more likes on his posts and social media or the more followers on his Twitter feed, the more skeptical Jesus became of people's true loyalties. Most of the time, we put people on pedestals and then place all of our hopes on them so that they're crushed when they inevitably fall. The problem with Jesus taking on all human hopes is that they were misplaced. We might think we know what's best, or we might think we know what we really need. But if that were true, we wouldn't really be in the mess that we're in. It was the conviction of Jesus that the reason he came is not to be what the people thought they needed, but to be what we truly need. Someone outside of our own mess to save us from our mess. Victory, and the way people wanted it, would be short-lived at best. But God had come in the flesh to perform a permanent victory, 
not over the flavor of the month political oppressors, but over the forces of darkness that prop up every oppressor for all time, even death itself. So Jesus didn't put his trust in human beings. But that doesn't mean he didn't trust. In fact, Jesus models such devotion and trust and obedience that if we reflect on his life, even in the most basic way, we will be moved by his sense of trust, which leads us to the second conviction Jesus lived out, his utter dependence on the will and character of the Father. Daryl Johnson is fond of saying, at the center of the universe is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ever existing, in perfect love, in perfect relationship, one God in mysterious Trinity. That's important to remember as we speak of the mysteries of the cross. Whatever Jesus goes through, the Father and the Spirit go through. In the truest sense, then, this is not Jesus suffering while the Father and the Spirit stand and watch by. This is God on the cross which is important for us to remember as we consider three realities. First, crucifixion was absolutely horrible. I'm not only tempering the length of these sermons, but also the content, because I know that during these coronavirus home worship settings, there could be children present. We don't need to go into all the details, but just know that crucifixion was designed to humiliate, to demoralize, and to cause maximum suffering. The second reality is that Jesus suffered. The Christian faith stands firmly against heresies like docetism that speaks of Jesus only appearing to be human, but in reality, he didn't suffer temptation or death on the cross. And Christianity is firmly against Nestorianism that teaches a Jesus who was merely a human and was later indwelled by the second person of the Trinity so that while a man named Jesus suffered, God did not. These heresies and a bunch of other isms that have arisen by humans ashamed to serve a God who suffers, which by the way is a sensibility that is much more Greek than Christian or Jewish, These other isms have all been challenged and debunked in the great councils of church history, and that's because they're not supported by Scripture. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, truly became a human being. He truly suffered, and therefore God truly suffered. The third reality I ask us to consider is that at any time, Jesus could have chosen to escape the cross, to get out of the pain and suffering and humiliation that he endured. In fact, why don't you pause for a moment and think of some places in Scripture where Jesus either does the will of the Father or where it says he chooses to lay his life down. Maybe write some references down in a journal or consider sharing out loud if you are with other people. And if you need a place to start, let me just give you a few Scripture references Matthew 26, 53, John 5, 30, John 6, 35, John 10, verses 11, 15, 17, 18, John 2, 19 through 22, John 5, 5, 25 through 30, John 19, 11. Okay, you get the picture. Pause the podcast and restart when you're ready. So I ask us to consider places in Scripture where Jesus indicates that he does the will of the Father and or says that he is the one who lays his life down. 
My point is simply to highlight the point made by Scripture. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was always in control of his destiny. I love the scene in John 18.6. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane when armed soldiers, guided by Judas, come to arrest him. Jesus says, Whom do you seek? To which they reply, Jesus the Nazarene. And then Jesus says, I am. And when they heard him, they drew back and fell to the ground. Listen, Jesus is the one through whom all creation not only came into being, but came into being because he spoke it into being. Jesus says two words and armed soldiers fall down. Jesus raises dead people like Lazarus by speaking it into existence. Jesus can literally call down legions of angelic warriors if you wanted to, any one of which could take out a whole Roman army of human beings. Jesus is no victim. The cross is no accident. Jesus could have escaped the cross, but the fact that he didn't means that he loves us that much, that he loves the Father that much. Jesus loves you so much that while he had the power to escape the pain, he chose to lay his life down so that you might have life. What good news. Jesus' last words from the cross reveal his deepest convictions. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, my life, my all. That's what the word spirit means in this context. It's not just Jesus giving the Father a part of himself. It is the total trust of one who gives themselves away. As we've seen uh, from the scriptures we looked up earlier, Jesus' whole life in the flesh on earth was lived out of trust in the Father. The very words, into your hands I commit my spirit, are quoted from Psalm 31. Jewish writers tell us that this was a popular psalm that Jewish mothers would read to their children before bed. And in the ancient Jewish worldview, the day started at sundown, at bedtime. So the thinking is this. The new day begins with human beings going to sleep in utter vulnerability. For the first eight hours of the day, humans do nothing, and yet the Father keeps the earth spinning on its axis and orbiting around the sun and causing crops to grow and seasons to change. Each day begins with a submission of our very lives into the hands of the Father. We are living in a clash between Palm Sunday hopes and Good Friday realities. Like the crowds on Palm Sunday, if we're really honest, we would love it if things just got back to normal. We would love it if God would just make it so that our health was a sure thing. We would love it if the stock market would just keep going up, up, up. If housing was secure, if we all had work, if we could see other people whenever we wanted, if we could go out on our vacations and get back to our soccer teams and dance groups and schools. Palm Sunday presents us with pre-coronavirus hopes and with a false sense of security. We would do well not to trust in the facade of a healthy unemployment rate or a strong stock market or the status quo. Those things don't save. And in truth, even before our world was turned upside down, even when things were quote-unquote normal, there were so many people who were busy but lonely, working but unhappy, wealthy in stocks but poor in spirit, 
not afraid about stepping out the front door, but ignorant to the fact that any day might be the day that our very souls are demanded of us. At least in this Good Friday reality, we're seeing with more humility than hubris, with more sobriety about how insecure life really is. I'll close with two exercises for you to consider before we participate in communion. First, now is a time for us to pause and confess where we have been committing our spirit, our very lives, our futures, our securities. Has it been in my health, I commit my spirit? Or in my performance, I commit my spirit? Or in my identity as a worker, I commit my spirit? Or in my ability to control my well-being, I commit my spirit? Fill in the blank and seek honest forgiveness if you can find that blank is filled with anything but the living God. Second, don't stop at confession. Let's move to repentance to a change of heart, to a change of allegiance if we found that our trust is in other things than Jesus. Let's pray together, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, my life, my all. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit, my life, my all. Holy Spirit, into your hands I commit my spirit, my life, my all.